Thank you. How many Christians does it take to move a pulpit, right? Man, it's uh, great to be with you here this morning. It's lovely to see you all. If you have your Bibles with you, will you please open them up to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 21. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 21 is the section we're going to be reading. If you haven't brought your Bibles with you this morning, I'd encourage you to do so, just to make sure that I didn't, uh, I'm not preaching something that isn't in the Bible. I know we put it up on the screen behind us, but maybe I changed that. So bring it along uh, and get familiar with your own Bible as well. It goes as follows. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and those who are following him, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So just to give you a bit of geography, you've got Jerusalem on one side on a hill, and then you've got a bit of a valley, and then you've got the Mount of Olives. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives, you've got Bethany and Bethpage. Um, it's close walking distance. It's just like a couple of miles to get from one, from one to the other. And so we see that Jesus and the, uh, will go stay in Bethany, probably with Lazarus, uh, his, his best mate, and, uh, and his sisters probably stay out of that area, and then will travel every day to Jerusalem. Only the wealthy could afford to live in Jerusalem during Passover, which we are coming to, and the poor and those who pilgrimaged into Jerusalem would stay on the outskirts. So at, at, uh, at Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter um, it, you will find a colt, a colt tied, no one, uh, which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt at, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they said, uh, and they said, uh, and they told them what Jesus had said, and, and they went, uh, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it and spread their cloaks on the road. And, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went um, before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. We were shouting that this morning ourselves. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went in the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when, he, uh, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it uh, was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no, one ever, uh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who uh, bought in uh, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money chargers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said 
to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for this account of Christ and his triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. We know that your word goes forth and achieves its purpose. And so tonight, or this morning, we ask that you would do that in our hearts. That your word would go and embed deep into good soil as we have prayed earlier. That, Lord, we would have ears to hear and that we would do well to respond to what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we find ourselves in an important point in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we find ourselves in the last week of Jesus' life, or at least until his resurrection. Jesus enters into Jerusalem today, and in a week's time he would have died, and he would rise again. So the remaining of Mark, we're only in chapter 11, to the remaining of Mark all the way up to chapter 16, is all takes place in one week. It's action-packed week in the life of Jesus and his disciples. But what we also see is there's a change in Jesus' approach to ministry. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that Jesus has been rather, uh, he conceals his identity. The demonic have rightly identified him. Jesus, the Holy One of God, he's told them to keep silent. Those who he has healed and those who he has done miracles for, he's told them not to go and tell anyone. When he asks Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he strictly charges him to say that to no one until nobody else. But so far, that has been the case. But today, what we see is something different. Jesus is publicly proclaiming who he is. And actually, we started to see a bit of a hint of that last week. In last week's text, we saw that there was this, a blind man named Bartimaeus who hears Jesus walking by and shouts, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. And normally Jesus might have said, keep quiet, don't tell anyone, but Jesus just leaves it. And today Jesus intentionally orchestrates an event that without a shadow of a doubt, for those who were seeing it and those who were watching it, proclaimed that he was the Messiah and that is his triumphal entry. This triumphal entry as Jesus rides in on a colt into Jerusalem with those crying out, Hosanna, which means God save us, is a, an intentional proclamation by Christ to say that he himself is the Messiah. And we see this text is covered in messianic prophecy, and we don't have time to look at all of it this morning because we have a lot to go through. But one of the main uh, prophecies that Jesus fulfills in doing this is from Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 12. It says this, just, just be amazed. It says how Jesus fulfills this so, so much later. It says, rejoice, Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. They were certainly doing that. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of, from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bows should be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, which we celebrated this morning, I will set, uh, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is what Jesus is fulfilling as he arrives in. And to the crowd who are there worshiping Jesus or, or proclaiming Hosanna to Christ as he walks in, 
they get this. And, and may I just say to you that this was a, a crowd, but not the whole of Jerusalem. I know sometimes we have the picture that the whole of Jerusalem would have been here doing it, but actually what we see in the other Gospels, the whole of Jerusalem hears about it, but this would have more or less been the crowd that Jesus have been following Jesus the whole time, and maybe one or two joined in as it was happening. But the crowd and those who hear about this event later on certainly know what Jesus is proclaiming and trying to prove that he is the Messiah. But may I say to you that their understanding of the Messiah was still withered. It was still incorrect. They still had a misunderstanding of what the Messiah had come to do. Actually, we see that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, verse 16. It says, and his disciples, talking about this event, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. And so it's only after the event that they really understand the significance of this because their understanding of what the Messiah was going to do, and we've said this through our series in Mark, is that he was going to be someone who was going to come and liberate them from Rome. That he was going to establish them as a powerful nation, establish Israel again as this independent nation, and set them free from prisoners. Yes, but prisoners of what? From Rome. That's what they were understanding was. While they see that Jesus is saying he's the Messiah, they don't understand what the Messiah has come to do and how he was going to do it. But funny enough, what we see in this text is we get a hint at actually how he is going to achieve this what the Messiah was going to do. And ironically, it comes from the crowd itself. The crowd in their proclamation, they say one statement. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes from another messianic psalm, Psalm 118, a salvation psalm. So as they crying out, Jesus is going to come and establish us as a, a nation again, actually what they don't realize is they are proclaiming how he's really going to set them free. Because in Psalm 118, there was another messianic passage, another, another prophecy that we see in Psalm 118 that is so important. It comes from verses 21 and 22. It says this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And here it is. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that we're talking about there is Jesus, who will become the cornerstone. But how, what is going to happen to the stone? It's going to be rejected. But by who? By the political leaders and religious leaders of the day. They are going to reject Christ. You see, the salvation that Jesus is bringing in isn't going to come through political reform. Isn't going to come through war and establishing an army. The salvation that this Messiah is going to bring, even though they are crying it out, that is going to come through his rejection from those who are in, um, in power in the day. Rejection of Christ is going to bring salvation. Now, spoiler alert for those of you who might not know, how this is going to look is Jesus is to die on the cross. They're going to reject Christ. They're going to hate him as we've already seen in our text. They despise him as he goes after them and the things that they value. And they're going to kill him on a cross. And as he dies upon the cross, Jesus becomes our substitute. He dies not so that we might be liberated from Rome, a political power, but rather he dies so that he might liberate us from the power of sin. And our sin would be laid upon Christ and the wrath of God that is deserved for you and me is rightfully given to, meant for us, is given to Christ because he is our perfect substitute. 
And as the wrath of God is poured upon him, Jesus will die the death you and I deserve to die, and he will rise again three days later, proving that he has defeated sin and death for you and me. You see, what Jesus had come to do was not to liberate us from Rome, but to liberate us from sin. What Jesus had come to do was not to set uh, uh, Israel free from prisoners of Rome, but rather he had come to uh, bring peace to all nations, to all who would believe in him. And this is the wonder of the salvation that Jesus brings. I hope you're tracking with me. Does it make sense? Because I can't say that all again. <laughs> so, so Jesus has come to do that, and, and he, has, he has the glorious thing. It doesn't come through action. It's, it's not a, you don't achieve the salvation because of the righteous works that you do. Because you're a good person. Because you're a good husband. Because you're a good citizen. Man, these things mean nothing in terms of earning salvation. But what it comes is through the Messiah who humbly came on a donkey who would die on a cross for your sin. Salvation is found in Him and Him alone. Amen? This is the beauty of the gospel. It comes through this wonderful Jesus. And it comes through believing simply in him. That he has done the work that you could not achieve. There's, he has set you free from, from an enemy that you could not liberate yourself from. It is in this Jesus that you find salvation in him and him alone. And the glorious thing about the salvation is not that you are just set free, but that you are brought into something. That Jesus will move you from being strangers and aliens to being fellow citizens of his kingdom. That he will take you to being a slave to sin, to being a part of his family. We see this wonderfully explained in Ephesians 2 verses 19 and 22. It says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens. Christians, this is you this morning. Just hear it. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's that word. Being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're taken from being a slave to sin to being a child of God. And this is all done because you are built onto the cornerstone of Jesus. He is the cornerstone to the building. Try to build your salvation on any other stone. It will collapse and fall. Salvation is only stable and built when it is built on Jesus. Take him away and he falls apart. Try add something else in that is not Christ. It will crumble. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. But church, what are we being built into? We've been built into a building, but what building is it? The temple. The temple, the only access you have to God is through Jesus. The only way you find forgiveness is through Jesus. The only way you get eternal life is through Jesus. Nowhere else can you find it. And you know what? He resides in you. He dwells in you. You become the temple of God. Now keep that in mind because that's going to be important for us going forwards. God dwells in you, believer. <laughs> Man, when, when we can grasp this, we can say along with that crowd, but in far more jubilance and, and far more surety, blessed be the name 
Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Because he has brought us a salvation like nothing else. A salvation that we could not obtain ourselves. Next, the next day, so, G, so what happens is Jesus enters into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry and he goes to the temple and he does some scouting. He analyzes the state of the temple and then he heads off home. It gets late. He heads off back to Bethany. He stays there the night and he, as he's heading toward the, the temple again, he, he's, we see that he's hungry. So Jesus probably didn't have enough breakfast or he wants a second breakfast. And he's, he sees a fig tree and it's in leaf. Now, I don't know too much about fig trees myself, but I'm being told that when fig trees are in leaf, they should be bearing fruits or close to bearing fruits. So when the fig tree, and though it says it was not in season, the, the fact that it has leaves means there's, there's a possibility that it's fruit. And so Jesus goes to it, goes to the fig tree and sees that it has no fruit at all and he's upset with it and he curses it. And then Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. But we've got to stop and ask ourselves, why is this fig tree story here? Mark is very brief. He, he gets to the point. He doesn't add in fluff and detail that might just be for your interest. He tells you things that are there for a reason. So why has he gone ahead and thrown in this random story of Jesus cursing a fig tree? But what we see here is what we would call a Markian sandwich or an inclusio. So it's a bit technical, but it's pretty simple. You've got the temple. Jesus goes and scouts the temple. And then you've got him going out and throwing everybody out the temple. And in between, you've got as the ham in the sandwich, you've got this, this fig tree story. Now, Mark puts it there as a, as a literary device for us to, um, to realize this is the whole point of the temple. The fig tree becomes an illustration and a parable for us to understand what is going on in the temple. The fig tree represents the temple. It's a physical parable for you and I to cross. Some of us, we went to school and we couldn't understand it because the teacher taught, but when they showed you it, you got it. Jesus is doing a practical example for you here. And so the fig tree represents the temple, and the temple ultimately represents everybody who uh, follows, follows God. And so what's Jesus' analysis of the temple is, is, is ultimately that the temple of God and the people of God, their relationship isn't doing well. It's fruitless. But you see, from the outside looking in, the people of God look like they're doing okay, right? It's, it's Passover. It's happening in a week's time. Pilgrims are flocking in from all over the world. There's a zeal and a religious zeal that is happening in the, the, the city. There's a buzz that is taking place in the city of Jerusalem. Things look good. This looks like a nation who love their God. But Jesus' analysis is it's not doing as well as it looks. It looks great. It has leaves. It is doing great on the outside, but actually when you go and look for fruit, there isn't any fruit. But how bad really was it? Well, we get to see a bit about how bad it is in Jesus' cleansing. And, and what we see here is, firstly, we see that they've set up a market inside the temple. Now, this market is something that is relatively new to Jesus' day. This hasn't been something that has been happening for generations to, uh, before but rather, this is, historians tell us, might have happened for the very first year that Jesus went in or three or four years before. It's something along those lines. They've been in this market, and the high priests have set up this market inside the temple in order to compete with the other markets and so that the, that the temple might make money. But they've decided to, they're going to put this market in a specific court in the temple, which is called Court of the Gentiles. Now, for those of you who don't know, the temple had a variety of different courts, 
and certain courts were where certain people could go. You had a court for men, you had a court for women, and you had a court for Gentiles. The Gentiles could had no access to any closer inner parts of the, the courts except for this very court. So if they wanted to worship God and be there to pray to God, they had to do so in this particular court. But it was a really big court, so it was great for if you wanted to run a market. This is where it would take place because there was a lot of space. But here's the thing about prayer and church, as we would know. Have a baby crying in the back. None of you are listening to me or turning around looking at that baby. Throwing a bleating sheep in a cooing pigeon and the hustling of a market and nobody's doing anything. And so this is why Jesus, when he starts to forcibly get everybody out and throw tables over, starts to teach and say, isn't my house meant to be a house of prayer? Isn't it meant to be prayer for all nations? You see, the Jews didn't care whether or not the Gentiles were praying or not. They wanted to make money. And Jesus is fuming because it restricted them from able to worship and pray their God. So that's one of the elements. Another thing that we see is what Jesus tosses over. He tosses over two things. He tosses over money charges. And these were people who took the currency. You see, the, what happened was the temple, they exchanged currency. The temple, if you want to give money to the temple, you could only use a certain shekel. No other currency would work. You had to use a certain shekel. There's an Old Testament law, and so they're following God's Old Testament. So they set up these exchanges to take place so that people can exchange money, which is a good thing, I would say. However, historians tell us what was happening is they were charging interest. So you weren't giving one rand and getting one rand's worth of stuff back. You get one rand, you get 50 cents back. And so you have a certain amount of money you need to tithe, and actually you have to tithe so much more in order to be able to honor God with your finances because they're not giving you the right amount of currency back. But all the money was going to the temple anyway. But they are exploiting people in order to make more money. And another way we see exploitation happens with the seats of the, the pigeons. Mark specifically points them out. Why? Because pigeons were a specific animal that was used to be for sacrifices, but not for the wealthy, but for the poor. For those who were rich, you could afford a lamb, you would sacrifice a lamb. But God in his Old Testament allowed that if you were poor, all you had to do was bring a pigeon and you could sacrifice it. But what was happening is that the people were selling the pigeons at 24 to 25 times the price. So you would come and want to buy in a pigeon and the poor couldn't afford it. Or they would have to really suffer to be able to honor God by asking for forgiveness through the sacrificial, sacrificial sacrifice of this pigeon. Now you might say, well, why don't you bring your own pigeon, right? Just bring your own one. Well, I don't know if you tra- have ever traveled with children. It's hard enough to do so, never mind bringing some pigeons along with you. I can imagine that wasn't very easy for pilgrims to go, so, go by foot kilometers and kilometers carrying pigeons with them in a cage. But even just say, well, why did you, why, you, if you lived in the area, why didn't you just buy in the other markets? Because when you rocked up at the temple with the, the pigeon that you have brought, guess you got to expect whether the, temple, the pigeon was good enough for a sacrifice? Ah, the people in the temple. Ah, sorry, Butz, got a bit of a blemish, yeah? You can buy one of ours. And so, so Jesus is fuming because of the injustice done to the poor. And so we see that while they looked great on the outside, Jerusalem was buzzing with religious activity. What was happening was injustice, a lack of care of whether God has been worshipped or not. And so they weren't bearing any fruit. And so what Jesus does is he goes in and he cleans house. Jesus flips over tables. He chases everybody out. No, it's not just those who were selling. 
He chases even the buyers. He chases everybody out because he needs to clean that temple because it's in a bad state. Now you might say, why does Jesus get to do that? Because that's his father's house and he gets to clean the house. Parents, you come home and your teenagers are throwing a party and there's some guys that are doing things that aren't there, they shouldn't be doing, what are you doing? Asking nicely? No. You clean the house. You, you, you go in, you go in, Jesus on the temple on them, right? You're chasing them out, and, and rightfully so. Now, may I, may I say that this mustn't become an excuse for us to become angry. Oh, man, I hear this often. People get angry and say, oh, don't get angry. No, no, but Jesus did. Jesus flipped tables. In, in the Gospel of John, he actually makes a whip. So, no, Jesus did it. So then I can do it. But may I just say a couple of things to this one? You're not Jesus. Surprise. You're not perfect like he is. But two, do you notice how slow Jesus is to anger? He sees it the one night he goes home and has a sleep and comes back the next day. How often is our anger like that? It's more of an explosion, isn't it? Jesus goes back. But what this does tell us, though, is that we as Christians shouldn't be fearful of conflict, particularly when we're fighting against injustice and sin. That we should fight for those things. However, what should fear us is not conflict, but what should fear us is that we, when we are in conflict, that we do so by the flesh and not by the Spirit. And, and, and as I've been preparing this week, and I came across this point, and as I considered it every day this week, as my, every day, I'm amazed how angry I get, every day as anger started to go up, may I tell you, I started to check myself, is this from the flesh or of the Spirit? Let me tell you, none of it was from the Spirit. <laughs> as I was going to say something, oh, that's not from the Lord, that's from me. At far, it doesn't happen as often as you think it does that you are with the Spirit in this one. We need to be slow. We need to be fearful when it comes to that. But, but, so what does this all have to do with us? What does this cleansing of the temple and the fig tree have to do with us? And, 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 and I want to remind you of what 1 Corinthians 6 verses 29 says and what we said a little earlier. It says this, that you are the temple of God. As we talk about the temple being cleansed, about the temple bearing fruit, remember, you are the temple of God, Christian. And so 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 says, uh, uh, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of God within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The question I have for us this morning, are you bearing fruits? Are you bearing fruits or are you just a bunch of leaves? Do you look good on the outside, but is there fruit that is there for you to be seen? And, and one of the ways we've got to ask ourselves this is whether or not you have a personal relationship with God at all. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Matt preached on John 15, that fruit is only being able to be born if, it is, if, the vine is, if the branch is connected to the vine, if we are connected to Jesus. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you could look good on the outside, but you're never going to bear any fruit. Do you know Jesus personally? Do you have a personal experience of God? Can you say, I know him? Because you see, what I've seen often before in our church, here at SBCs, I see teenagers grow up in our church, and what that happens is they head off to varsity, they love SBC and they involve the SBC. They like what happens at SBC. But when they head off to varsity and they come back and visit during the holidays, and you start to say to them, hey, what church are you at? No, I don't go to church. But I'm like, yeah. What happens is their relationship with God is more cultural than it is personal. Something that they enjoy in the cultural scheme rather than a personal thing. 
Or we see adults get involved in the church and what happens is they love it. Yeah, they love the people because we have the best people. We have, they like our worship. It's the right, like the right sound. It's not too loud. It's not too soft. Maybe you disagree with that. But it's, it's just, this is what they particularly like. The, the preaching's okay. They, they enjoy things. And then when they go to another church, well, they couldn't quite find the same awesome people because those are only awesome people are here at SBC. The others aren't as, as awesome. I'm sucking up a little. But those are, and, then, and then they head off and, and the worship's a bit too loud or a bit too soft and the preaching's a bit too harsh or a bit too soft. And, 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 and so what happens is they just don't join a church in the new city that they've had to move to, and then over time, their faith diminishes. Why? Because their faith has become rather a, an emotional, social thing rather than a personal thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells of a story of an 18-year-old who came to him after a service and said, Doctor, Doctor I need to talk to you about your sermon. And, he, and so they went off to his office and they started speaking, and he said, Doctor, I, I've grown up in your church from a little baby. I've been here. My family is the religious family on our block. I'm the religious kid at school. I'm the one who defends our faith. I love your sermons because I get to have arguments for the faith. But tonight is the very first night as you preached that I realized that I need to know God personally. It's personal. Have you had an experience with God? Because we can fool ourselves with having a wonderful bunch of leaves, but do you know him personally? But we've got to ask ourselves and the question of whether or not we bear fruit. And maybe you can say, yes, today I do know him personally. But we've got to ask ourselves, do we bear fruit? And, and because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we get to bear fruit. And a mark of the Holy Spirit is that we have these fruits that bear in our lives called the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit, but it's multiple different sections of it that are evident in our lives. And we see this in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. It says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And, and, and the question, I, the one, the very first one there that it stands out, and we've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks, so I'm going to emphasize it a little, is that of love. Is love evident in your life? And primarily, is it evident in your love for God? Because if you don't love God, you ultimately are not going to be able to love out and love in. If you don't love up, your loving in and loving out is not going to be there nearly as, as, as it needs to be. Sometimes we, we teach falsely. It says, when Jesus says, love your neighbors, you love yourself, we think we need to go love ourselves more. You know the reason why Jesus says, go love your neighbors, you love yourself? Because we are very good at loving ourselves. <laughs> and so Jesus says, man, if you could just love others as much as you love yourself, you're doing great. But ultimately, if you, if you don't love God, if you don't love the perfect father, you're not going to love his sinful children. If you don't desire God and you don't care about His glory, you're not going to want others to desire Him and others to praise Him, those who don't know Him. And so a litmus test of how our love for God is going is how well you're loving others and how well you're loving the lost. Is this a, is this a fruit that is bearing your life? Now, I know we've got tables set up and that's there. You can sign up and, 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 and part of me wants to punt that, but I, genuinely, I don't care if you sign up or not, but I want you to bear fruits. Because, you, again, you could sign up and put on a bunch of leaves, but are you bearing fruit? Do you love? Do you love God? Do you care about Him? Does this Jesus that we have spoken about, do you know Him? 
Do you love Him? Do you desire Him? And is that outflowing, church, into a love for others and for the lost? Do you do that? This is the challenge of the Scriptures for us. And one of them, I I, want to say, there's nine of them, so we're not going to go through all nine fruits. But what we see is there's another one called faithfulness. Notice it's faithfulness, not faith. They're they're connected, but different. And, 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 And here, are you faithful to God? Are you faithful to His words? Are you faithful to the responsibilities that He has given you as a husband, as a wife, as a parent? Are you faithful to the things that you said you would do for him? Are you faithful to what Howie has been talking about earlier, about the calling that he has placed on your life? Because you have one, believer. You have one. Are you faithful to it? Are you faithful to the gifting that he has placed in you by the Holy Spirit? Are you faithful to that? And notice it says faithful, not successful. <laughs> oh, thank the Lord it doesn't say successful. It says faithful. And so that means you don't have to have this raging ministry. It doesn't mean you have to have tens of thousands of people or even 10 people coming to know Christ through your testimony or, or people's lives being changed through what you do. No, all you have to do is be faithful with what he's called you to do. Do you notice in that in the parable of the talents that to the five-talent person and the two-talent person, they both get the same praise? Well done, my good and faithful servant. It's not about how talented you are. It's about how faithful you are with whatever talent you've been given. You might say, I don't have much. I don't have much to offer. It's fine. Take the little you have. And Jesus says, those who've been faithful with the little will get more. You will get more. Be faithful with what you have. And lastly here, before we close off, is is we need a clean house. We need to take stock of the temples that we are and ask in ourselves whether or not there is some tossing of tables that needs to happen and kicking over of chairs. This is, this is the whole point of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 when he says, Or do you not know that your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He, he, the church of Corinthian, uh, the, uh, the Corinthian church was involved in deplorable amount of sin in horrible, horrible amounts of sin and and things that would make your hair stand on end. And what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to say, man, if you could just grasp, if you could realize that you are the temple of God, you can almost hear him say, like, if you could just get this, that you would, if you could just understand that God, that God, the Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, dwells within you. If you could get this, you would change. Now, he's particularly talking about sexual sin in this, in this passage, but it, it applies to all sin that he's trying to say to them, God dwells in you, church. Stop sinning. That's what he's saying. He's saying, stop it. For God is within you, believer. He, he, he dwells within you. And, and, and he, so, so, man, if, if church, if you're, you, you're struggling with sin, stop it. That habitual sin that you have taken over time and you're just ignoring it, stop it. That, that sin that is in your life that nobody knows about, I want to know God dwells within you. He knows it, so stop it. That sleeping with someone that you are not married to, that affair that you are having, that porn addiction, that dirty jokes that you tell and the way you speak that is not God-glorifying, the same mouth that you worship Him with is the same you're telling those jokes. Stop it. The programs that you watch that do not glorify God and you would not watch in church, do not watch it. 
the dodgy business deals that you are doing, the advantage you are taking of the poor, stop it because God dwells within you. And, and, and the, 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 the application of this, the, the way we hear that means that we need to go and forcibly make some changes. The Jesus, what Jesus is telling us here is to go and forcibly make some changes. It's going to be difficult, it's going to be tough, it's going to be costly, but go and do it. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to throw into hell. Now, Jesus is not saying literally poke out your eye and throw it away. He's not saying cut off your arm literally and toss it because where does sin stem from? Not the outward actions, but the inwardness of the heart. And so you could poke out all your eyes and you'll still lust. But, But what Jesus is trying to say is take it seriously. Take sin seriously. Make the actions that you need to take. Do what you need to do. Cast it off. And as I say that this morning, please don't make that about somebody else today. Don't sit there and go, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening to me. Oh, he needs to get this. Because Christian, you are, you, you're a temple. You are. Don't worry about so-and-so. Clean up what's in you. Because get, get, again, you're not Jesus. You're not perfect. You've got some cleaning up to do. Can we admit that? And so you've got to do some cleaning up, man. Jesus says, don't worry about the, the speck in your brother's eye. You've got a log in your own. Just assume you have a log and it needs removing. And there's an urgency to this. Don't wait. Don't go, yo, that, that Joe guy, he was a bit cross today, wasn't he? Gr- grumpy pants, someone buy him a Coke. That'd be nice. But... There's an urgency behind this because as Jesus came in riding on a donkey, a humble king, he promises to come back again. But this time he's going to come in the fullness of his glory, riding on a horse with a sword in his mouth as the king of kings and the lord of lords and the judge of the living and the dead. And, and when Jesus teaches that very truth in scripture, his, his, his application is be watchful. Don't slumber or sleep. Don't wait for another point in life. Don't go, when I've had kids, when the kids are out of school, when I've graduated, when I've... No, he's he's saying, deal with things now. Get right with God now. You see, church, this isn't about making us religiously good. No, because where do we get our salvation? It's through faith in Jesus alone. But what this is about is this is about being right with God. This is about loving Him and dwelling with Him. And your sin in your life hinders that. It does. I mean, Bryce and I were talking the other day. Sometimes we have conversations with people and they say to us, oh man, God's just not speaking to me. And when you start dealing with where they are in their lives, they are so far from the Lord in sin. And you go, well, that's why. Deal with it. And, 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 and I say this because, and if you feel condemned this morning, remember Christian, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if there is a bit of a discipline and a bit of a rebuke this morning, this is God just drawing you in. He's saying, come, I want to enjoy you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. I have so much to give you. You're dealing with petty little stupid things. Come and enjoy the fullness of my satisfaction. Amen? Let us pray. I'm going to ask the worship team if they could come forward. I've ended, ended there.
as they do that, what we, as, as a church, we don't want to rush these moments, especially when we have some time like we do now. But we want to respond because we don't want to only be hearers of God's word. We want to be doers of it. We don't want to just be some people who grow in our knowledge but grow in our love and apply this. What is God saying to you this morning? What is one thing that he is saying to you? Is there any sin in your life that he is picking at going, man, I want you to deal with this. Don't let that go. Deal with it. Determine in your heart to do it. Is there a, a, a task that he is asking you to be faithful with? Go ahead and do it. Maybe you've realized today that you've known Jesus culturally or socially or emotionally, but you don't know him personally. Maybe you need to give your life to Christ today and say, Lord, I believe in you. Forgive me. If that is you today, come and tell us afterwards. We'd love to rejoice with you and pray with you. Father, we thank you so much for the faithfulness of your word. We thank you that you're a father who doesn't just let us get away with things that we shouldn't. But like a loving father, you keep us in line when we need to. We thank you that we can actually call you Father through Christ. It's wonderful that we can delight in you, rejoice in you, know you, not because of what we've done, because of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we as your church would know that we are dwelt with the Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, that Holy Spirit would bear this wonderful fruit in our lives that you draw us closer to, to Christ so that we might honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you please stand with me as we respond to this word in the last song.
morning as I came in, um, almost immediately this, this scripture dropped into my heart and it's not uh, as if I've been reading it. So, and just listening to uh, Joe preaching this morning, uh, just listening to this song, I believe it's from the Lord. So I'd like you to really listen um, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ, our love for Christ, controls us that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised Jules just uh, if we could just sing the chorus again and then but uh, as we sing in the chorus the challenge would be that uh, you seek the Lord and you call on his name and you ask him to bring revelation, you ask him to bring understanding, you ask him that you can discern and know his way in your life, and so be encouraged this morning, clearly the Lord has spoken to us this morning. Be my everything, be my simple prayer this morning and we pray it without fear or condemnation we pray Lord that uh, you will cleanse your temple that you will grow your temple that your temple will bear much fruit you reminded us this morning that we part of that temple and each one of us has a role to play. So we go with your blessing. We go knowing that you have spoken to us. We go with joy and love in our hearts for what you have done amongst us this morning. So bless you all. Coffee and tea under the tent. If there's anybody who wants to chat to Joe or myself, uh, We'll be up front here if you need to do that.